Well, when I was a kid, our family didn't have cable television, but my grandma did. And so uh, I loved being at her house, not just for the cable television, but for many reasons. My cousin lived with my grandma, and so we spent a lot of time there, and a lot of time watching WWF wrestling, or CMT was a pretty new thing, that was amazing. Or at night, my cousin and I would stay up late watching USA Up All Night with Gilbert Gottfried. We definitely shouldn't have been watching it, but we did nonetheless. But, but I remember it must have been when I was about at 9 or 10 that a new channel came on cable that was fascinating. Uh, even to me at the time, it was fascinating. It was called Court TV. Some of you remember uh, when Court TV came about. It was really, for, for many people, the very first time that they'd ever seen sort of the inside working of a courtroom. In those days, it was common uh, that TV cameras weren't allowed in courtrooms, and so Court TV was groundbreaking. Uh, of course, many of us remember the fall of 1995, our eyes uh, glued to the trial of O.J. Simpson, Remember attorney Johnny Cochran with his famous, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. And now we live in sort of the golden age of courtroom TV. Many of us watched closely during the trial in Morton County of uh, Chad Isaac. This week, I know many of you, I got texts from several of you who are watching the Kyle Rittenhouse trials from Kenosha, Wisconsin. Many of us are fascinated by this stuff. Uh, One of the things that I think is most fascinating is to see how Two people can watch the same exact testimony, can see the same exact evidence, and arrive at two entirely different conclusions. If you've been following the Rittenhouse trial, at least in the media, you know how true that is. Well, today our text takes us inside of a courtroom, into a trial. Last week we discussed Jesus' arrest in Gethsemane, and today Mark's account takes us in the room as the Sanhedrin is holding a a fraudulent, corrupt trial against Jesus. This trial, as you'll see in verses 56 and in verse uh, 59, was, was full of contradictory testimony from supposed witnesses, all set on getting rid of Jesus, by and large because he was a threat to their power. From Mark chapter 14, I'll begin reading in verse... 53. Mark 14, starting in verse 53. This is God's word to us. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they didn't find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. 
And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit on him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. Let's pray. Gracious God, may your spirit use your word to lead us to repentance and to true faith. May we increase in understanding, but may our time in your word never remain merely intellectual. Create faith, strengthen faith, give us the assurance of what your Son has accomplished for us. And so, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the response of all of our minds and our hearts be acceptable and be glorifying to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in many ways, uh, this is a fairly straightforward, fairly easily comprehended passage of Scripture. Sometimes when it comes to a text like this, uh, preachers have the tendency to try to make things more complicated than they need be. My aim today is not to give you some uh, profound insight from, that you only get from studying the Greek, but more so just to simply expose, to simply shine a light on several things in this passage that are worthy of our meditation that we don't want to miss in these verses. Uh, before I bring to your attention several of these must-see aspects of the text, uh, I want to give you a little bit of a framework to understand the power structures and the personalities that we see in our text today. They bring Jesus before the Jewish ruling council, known as the Sanhedrin. This was a group of 70 men, consisting of priests, elders, and scribes, or experts in the law. And it would have been chaired by whoever was high priest that year. If you're familiar with this office of high priest in the Old Testament, you know that it was a it was a role originally filled by someone from the line of Aaron. By the time of Jesus, it had been sort of opened up to others as well. It was a powerful elected position. We have two people associated with the office of high priest in the Gospels. One is Annas and the other is Caiaphas. For example, John's Gospel records that Jesus, after his arrest, was initially taken to stand before Annas. And then to Caiaphas. Uh, Annas had served as high priest for quite some time before this event. And the current high priest, Caiaphas, was his son-in-law. Uh, so their leadership was closely intertwined. It's helpful to note if you were to line up all the gospel accounts of the, the office of high priest. And also, as we see it in the book of Acts, you might have some confusion about who served in the role when. But I think most of it's resolved when we think about this being the high office that it is, and that Annas would have been called high priest even after he uh, had retired from that role. In the same way that if you were walking down the street today and you ran into George W. Bush, you would likely address him as President Bush, not as George. So same thing happening here we see in the book of Acts 
Annas, referred to as the high priest, it's a title of honor. He had, he had ceased to serve in that role, given that uh, role over to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. So the Sanhedrin, this group of 70 leaders of the Jewish people, along with Annas, the former high priest, and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, the current high priest, make up most of the people in our text for today. So with that background framework in place, I want to share four things that I want to make sure that you don't miss in this trial of Jesus. And the first thing is this. Don't miss the way that Mark emphasizes the difference in character between Jesus and the disciples. So there's this great difference in the character of Jesus as opposed to the character of the disciples. And Mark is emphasizing this very clearly. It was mentioned uh, just briefly in our text for this week. But when we zoom out and see all of chapter 14, it becomes pretty clear that Mark is, uh, is making this a significant point in his gospel. Uh, verse 54 says, And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire. It's interesting how Mark phrases it, seemingly making the point that, that Peter is he's around, but he's distant. He's over talking with the guards as he warms himself by the fire. He's listening. He knows what's going on, but he's keeping a distance. And of course, if you know what happens following this, you know that this is part of Peter sort of distancing himself uh, from the Savior. I mentioned this point not to fully develop it. We'll be devoting our time and attention to that account of Peter's denial next week. But this is an important theme that shows up and continues throughout this chapter and specifically. This theme begins with Judas going to the chief priests to make a deal. We have the Passover scene, the Lord's Supper, which Jesus mentions betrayal again, and then they leave the upper room and Jesus tells the disciples that they will all fall away, and specifically that Peter would deny him, betray him three times, And then, of course, we have the scene that we discussed last week that takes place in Gethsemane. The disciples keep falling asleep on Jesus. They they fail him. It's immediately followed by Judas betraying Jesus, handing him over to the authorities. And then it's sort of capped off by by that strange, mysterious scene of the young man who runs away, leaving his garment behind, runs away naked in shame. So Mark's mention of of Peter here is just one more reminder that Peter, the denier, was present for Jesus' trial, warming himself with some of the guards around a fire. We don't don't want to miss the continuation of that theme that will sort of come to a head next week. The second thing that I don't want you to miss is the profound irony of the high priest prosecuting the great high priest. The high priest prosecuting the great high priest. Look at verse 60. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? Don't you have anything to say for yourself? Why is this so ironic? If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. I'll be reading starting in verse 3. But in this way, 
Aaron shall come into the holy place. So Aaron is the high priest. Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, shall have the linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear a linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So these were the instructions given to the high priest for the Day of Atonement, what became known after that as the Day of Atonement. Uh, And whoever was serving as the high priest would go through this cleansing process, would wear the right garments, and would enter into God's presence, and he would make atonement for the sins of the people. The high priest was the mediator between God and mankind. The only, uh, he was the only one who was authorized to make atonement for sin on behalf of Israel. The high priest, we, we might say, was a type of Christ, a precursor of Christ. Aaron and those who followed him were symbolic of Christ. Their office and their actions were intended to point forward to Jesus who would come. Now I want you to turn over, if you have your Bibles, to Hebrews chapter 4. We have the, the beginning of the story, and now we get sort of the end of the story. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. We see how clear this becomes. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And then verse 5, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So the author of Hebrews is reflecting upon this office of high priest, that this person was chosen from among human beings and appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, this mediator between God and man, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, what Hebrews says, is the great high priest. He is the culmination of this office that had existed for centuries, pointing forward to the promised one. He fulfills this placeholder that was in place. 
And so think about the irony of this moment as Jesus is on trial. The high priest Caiaphas was acting as the prosecutor, we might say, in a trial in which Jesus, the great high priest, the one to whom Caiaphas's office and role was pointing and was to find its fulfillment, Jesus is the defendant. He is standing trial about to be condemned. Caiaphas was supposed to point forward to Jesus' sacrifice for the sin of the world and instead wanted him dead. Tremendous irony. The third thing I don't want you to miss in our text is the significance of Jesus' silence. Look at verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and gave no answer. We heard the scripture reading from the prophet Isaiah. It says he was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, led like a lamb to the slaughter. A sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus remains silent in front of his accusers. But why? Jesus, of course, is the living word, fulfilling the word of the prophets. As Jesus said, said famously, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. And to that end, Jesus remains silent. He knows where he's going. He knows why he's there. I think there may be some practical reasons as well. We've all been in those situations in which, as the saying goes, the silence is deafening. So you think about it from the perspective of the Sanhedrin. When Jesus, wrongfully accused, stays silent. They knew the words of Isaiah. Look at what that silence led to. In verse 61, we have what is a beautiful, albeit accidental, confession of who Jesus is. Caiaphas says, in the absence of Jesus saying anything. Are you the Christ? The Son of the Blessed? Jesus' silence not only fulfilled the scriptures, but led to this grand confession of who Jesus is, to which he must simply reply, I am. Don't miss the the difference in character between Jesus and the disciples. Don't miss the the irony of the high priest prosecuting the great high priest. And don't miss the significance of Jesus' silence. Finally, don't miss the reason for the death sentence. Verse 61. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, you might be asking, why did Caiaphas say the Blessed instead of just saying the Son of God? Uh, You might be familiar with a a common practice of the Jews, which was to avoid saying or or writing the name of God in order to make sure they weren't using his name in vain. To this day, many adherent Jews, when they write out the name of God, will write G-D instead of writing out uh, G-O-D. 
in order to try to avoid using his name in vain. And so that's what Caiaphas is doing here. He's coming up with another name for God. And so what is Jesus' response? When Caiaphas says, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Uh, Jesus says, I am. I am the Christ. I am the Son of the Blessed. I am the Son of God. And he says, and you will see me sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. There is much imagery that's packed into these words of Jesus. He is claiming to to be the one spoken of multiple times in the Psalms. He's the one spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Consider Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is, in no uncertain terms, claiming to be equal with God. He claims to be the one who will return in judgment on the last day. Remember all the times in the Gospels that Jesus gave instructions not to tell anyone. We saw this especially in the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus said multiple times, don't tell anybody what you've seen, or don't tell anybody what I said, what I did. This theme of the divine secret that's been going on throughout the gospel, making clear that Jesus' time had not yet arrived, has now been revealed. Jesus' claim to divinity is clear. And this is the claim that leads the chief priest to tear his clothes. Did you see that in the text? In the eyes of the Sanhedrin, Jesus had just committed blasphemy. Tearing clothes was a sign of grief and anger. This is clearly a a symbolic gesture in which the high priest illustrates how significant and how damning these claims of Jesus were. And then he, he, he says, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard it. He just admitted guilt. What is your decision? And Mark is so straightforward in his account, he says they all condemned him as deserving death. Why was he condemned? Because he simply said what had become evident all throughout his ministry, that he is, in fact, the Son of God. You know, the most significant question in the life and in the leadership of Caiaphas was the one that was asked that day. Whether Jesus was just a a rabbi, just a human teacher, or whether he was the Son of God. And, And the same is true for you and for me. There is no more significant question for me to ask of myself than whether I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. If this claim is true, if Jesus truly is the Son of God, then how are we to respond It seems the only fitting response, if these words are true, is repentance and worship. If it's true that Jesus is divine, what does that mean? That that means that I am not divine, right? If it's true that Jesus is the one at the right hand of God, it means that I am not on the throne. And that realization should always lead me to repentance, to confess my tendency to place myself on the throne 
to confess my inadequacy, to trust in His. When we hear these words that conclude our text, that Jesus was mocked, spit on, was beaten, how do we respond? Again, we respond in repentance. Because we know that all of this is for us. Because we know that Jesus had spoken of these events. Because we know that these weren't random acts of violence on the part of the Jewish authorities, but really were part of God's plan that the weight of the world's sin should rest upon his Son. That the Lamb of God would be sacrificed for you and for me. We respond to our text in repentance and worship. Repentance because I know that it's my sin that struck the Savior that night. Because I've spent so much of my life trying to nudge him off of the throne and to enthrone myself. We respond in repentance because it's for us that Jesus was there. When the Sanhedrin condemned him, that is my condemnation. It's what I deserve. We respond in repentance and then in worship. Because what else is fitting? I should be the one on trial and instead his word declares that I'm forgiven and that I'm promised eternal life through faith alone. What else is a proper response? There is no other response than just simply to worship. Worship him for his mercy and his grace and his love. All of our salvation, your salvation, my salvation is wrapped up in these moments. These emotional and powerful moments in which the Savior is on trial. We worship God today because Jesus was condemned. Because he was crucified for you and for me. And we rejoice today because he made our salvation and our hope and our eternal life possible. And despite the the weakness, the failure, the character flaws of his disciples and of you and of me, and despite what we deserve, and despite our sin, He is faithful to us. He holds us fast. He will not let go. Praise be to God. Let's pray. God, we we confess and we believe that Jesus was innocent. That he was not guilty despite the words and the accusations and the condemnation. We confess this morning together that it was us who deserved the punishment that he took so willingly. God, we confess that he was despised and rejected not only by the Jews, but by us. We confess that he carried our grief, that he was pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities. We confess that we, like sheep, have gone astray. That we have turned away, every one of us, to our own way. 
We believe, O God, that you laid upon him the iniquity of us all. It was because of my sin that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet refused to open his mouth. It was because of me that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. So we praise you, O Lord, that it was your will to crush him instead of us. That he chose to make his grave among the wicked rather than to condemn us to the hell that we deserve. Have mercy on us. As we know that we deserve, we confess that we deserve what he willingly took on. And so we worship you today because we know that Jesus is our only hope. And we give you thanks and praise that he has promised to be faithful. That he will not let us go. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.